diamonds, rubies, sapphires, and emeralds. These precious stones radiate beauty and delight those who possess them. How does their beauty reflect God's handiwork in creation? Stay tuned. He loves doing things by, you know, in a beautiful way and lots of variety, lots of color. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. Gems have been highly valued throughout history and still today are cherished and admired by many. But are these precious stones more than just earthly treasures? And what do they tell us about our Creator? Join us for the next 15 minutes as we talk about precious gems and discover how their worth extends beyond our worldly borders. Dr. Andrew Snelling is Director of Research for Answers in Genesis in Kentucky. He tells us about the importance of precious stones in the Bible and how they show the uniqueness of God's creative design. Jewels are mentioned with the apparel of the high priest. They're given different names in the Bible where they're not necessarily the modern scientific names, but we can recognize what some of them are. There's also gems mentioned in the book of Revelation. They're going to be part of the heavenly city. So God loves gems because he made them. They're there to reflect his beauty, the different colors, the different varieties. I mean, he's such a God of wonder and amazement. He loves doing things, you know, in a beautiful way and lots of variety, lots of color. And so gems remind us of God's ability to physically create variety and color in the physical realm, just as all the different plants and different flowers reflect his ability variety in the plants and all the different animals some animals have got fur on some animals he's got skin some has got scales all different sizes shapes forms that's because he's such a a magnificent god all powerful loves beauty loves variety so gems are another part of god's creation but this is a physical creation ICR geologist Bill Hoche would agree and says these glimmering gems should help us to see God as a God of beauty. You know, we read our Bible and we get this black and white view of God, but we really ought to be thinking in technicolor here. These gemstones are, you know, you have every shade of the rainbow essentially covered here. Fascinating to me. You know, God is the God of color. You you look in a prism, you know, it separates uh, light into its bands or the, the colors of a rainbow. Unbelievably beautiful. So we don't have to look at the hummingbirds and the butterflies and all this to see the beauty of God. We can see it even in gemstones. And some of these beautiful jewels are out of this world, literally. Former ICR professor of geology David McQueen tells us that in eternity, we'll be surrounded by certain types of precious stones. So here's a description of the New Jerusalem has a wall around it, and in verse 18 of Revelation 21 it reads, And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, likened to clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, and the twelfth an amethyst. 
If the wall is jasper and jasper is red, then isn't that a beautiful image for us in thinking about the future, in thinking about gems in the future? Because when we see that red jasper, we see the rabbinical color red or the red of atonement. And so the very walls of the New Jerusalem will provide reminders to us of the Lord Jesus, the red of his atonement. Besides their radiant beauty, what makes rubies and opals and other precious stones so valuable? David McQueen explains how rare these minerals really are. Minerals are naturally occurring inorganic chemical compounds. If we look at all the chemicals that we have available to us, and these are plastics and drugs and pesticides and minerals, there are 10 million different chemicals. Only 1 in 5,000 chemicals are minerals. They're, they're very rare. Then if we look at the number that have been used in antiquity and even today as gemstones, we end up with a number of 50 or 100 different minerals that are beautiful enough and durable enough to be put in jewelry and necklaces, earrings, and those we call gemstones, precious gems and semi-precious gems. So just how are these jewels formed? Dr. Snelling explains. Gems are the result of the way atoms are bound to one another of different elements to form crystals. And so you have different metals combining with oxygen and silicon or with one another and they make different shapes and they make different colors and they occur in different places. You get gems in a lot of volcanic rocks. Um, in some parts of the world, the sapphires and rubies have been produced by molten material coming up from deep inside the earth and cooling and these crystals form inside the basalt. But does it take long evolutionary periods of time for these gems to develop? Bill Hoche says long ages are not needed to produce precious stones. Most of these stones formed in a setting, in an igneous kind of setting, in which you have rock that cools, for example, a lava flow, uh, and, and you have uh, gas pockets in, for example, a lava flow, uh, and those gas pockets, as the thing settles and cools, uh, they tend to fill in with these minerals. That's how a lot of these things form. So there's no, no reason to invoke long ages in the cooling of a lava flow. Uh, for example, other uh, minerals like garnets uh, are found in metamorphic rocks, in which case you have uh, extremely high pressure, uh, the kind of things where continents are colliding with continents, that kind of a setting. You have the formation of, of the kind of metamorphic rocks that contain garnets. Unless you're already predisposed to want to believe in long ages, there's no reason to believe they happened over long periods of time. Dr. Snelling says, although both creationists and evolutionists know the science behind the formation of gems, evolutionists ignore a very important element in the creation of these glistening jewels. They just look in terms of the physical laws and the physical properties of the atoms that link up the different elements, the metals and oxygen. They just look at the the chemistry and the physics and say that's all there is to it. They just add time and so you have the rock cycle and volcanic activity over millions of years and so they're not looking or not asking the question why is it that the atoms have those properties that link? For example, 
Why do carbon atoms link in that way to produce diamond? It's only because of the way God created those atoms to do that. Otherwise, it's just pure chance. Well, why did it form in that combination and not some other combination? The same with the ruby and sapphire. Is it just pure chance? Nonsense. The very fabric and structure of nature of the physical creation points to an intelligent designer, a creator. They try to overlook that and just try to look in terms of natural processes over millions of years without stopping to think who gave the atoms those properties to be able to bind in such ways to make the beautiful gems. It may be surprising to some people that although God created all of the ingredients needed to produce gems, many of the precious stones we admire today were not part of the original creation. Bill Hoche explains. Most of these gemstones were not formed as primordial rocks in the creation. It looks like they formed uh, subsequent to creation. just looks that way. I think some of them are found in primordial rocks, which we would say were creation-weak rocks. I think there are some gemstones that are found in those. I think a lot of them are found in, uh, in basalt flows, things where you can see it was an event. You can see it was an event subsequent to creation in which they formed. The garnets, for example, you can see sedimentary rock uh, or continents with sedimentary rock on them collided in such a high-pressure regime to produce the garnet, things like that. We often hear the terms gem and gemstone being used interchangeably. But as Dr. Snelling tells us, there is a difference between them. Gem tends to be, the correct terminology is when it's a mineral in its own right. So, for example, ruby and sapphire are a crystal gem because they are a mineral that forms a a crystal, brilliant luster, crystal shapes, jagged edges, etc., etc. A gemstone tends to look like a a normal stone, but it can be polished and it's got colour and so it's prized for its value because of its beauty. Jade is a gemstone. It's actually a mineral, but it doesn't have the crystal shapes that you find with diamonds and rubies and sapphires. There's actually two varieties of jade. True jade is the mineral jadeite, and there's a second variety. It's another green mineral called nephrite, which is green like jadeite, but they're two different varieties of jade. And Dr. Snelling says many of these jewels, both gems and gemstones, formed in volcanic activity as a part of Noah's flood. He says it's amazing that God was allowing this kind of beauty to develop in the midst of judgment. When you think about the flood, it was sent because man was wicked. Man was sinful and God said, I want to utterly destroy man from the face of the earth. So God was angry and he was judging. Just like today, many people turn their back on God and they're deserving of his judgment. That's not a popular thing to say, but God can justly punish people today if they turn their back on him because he created them. And yet during the flood when he was doing that, when he was destroying everything off the face of the earth, except Noah and his family and the animals on the ark, He was still doing beautiful things. He was allowing gemstones and gems to form so that there would be 
again, beautiful reminders that even in judgment, God brings good things out of it. And the same happened with his son, Jesus Christ. When he suffered God's judgment, the judgment that was due to us because of our wickedness, God's wrath was fallen on Jesus Christ. Something beautiful came out of that. He rose from the dead to offer us eternal life. Not only did he take the penalty for our sin, take the anger of God, the judgment, but death itself was conquered. Isn't that beautiful? The flood was a judgment, but God did beautiful things through it. Jesus' death was a judgment, but he did something beautiful that will last for eternity. Just like gems in in the holy city will last for eternity because it is our eternal God that made them and it's our eternal God that died for you and for me. As our program comes to a close, we hope that you've been encouraged. It's our desire at ICR to show that the Bible can be trusted, both historically and scientifically, and to give facts that will build your faith. As Christians, we need to understand the scientific basis for our beliefs. We pray that this program will aid you in your discovery of science and the Bible. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.